Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Molly Ivins was a nationally syndicated political columnist and author who remained cheerful despite the state of politics in this country and her own physical trials. Raise Hell, The Life and Times of Molly Ivins, tells the story of a media firebrand by the name of Molly Ivins, six feet of Texas trouble who took on the good old boy's corruption wherever she found it. Her razor-sharp wit left both sides of the aisle laughing and craving ink in her columns. She knew the Bill of Rights was in peril and said so. Polarizing people is a good way to win an election and a good way to wreck a country. Molly Ivan's words could not be more prescient. And with that, I want to introduce to our audience the director of this terrific new film called Raise Hell, The Life and Times of Molly Ivins, and that would be Janice Engel. Janice, welcome to Film School Radio. Thank you, Mike. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're so welcome. I'm glad you're here. This is a, a documentary, even though um, it has been a... Uh, Molly's career goes back a few years. It could not, as I said earlier, could not be more prescient. What she told us then is just as true today. Um, Just curious how you got to know about Molly or or what sort of prompted you to embark on on a documentary film project about her and her life. Well, so I am not part of Molly's constituency, right? I didn't grow up. Um, in an area where her column came, and I'm also um, a few generations after her. So I'm a baby boomer, and I grew up on, in New York, and then I went to school in, in Los Angeles. So I like to say I'm from the left coast and the other left coast. So I didn't see Molly growing up. I became aware of her, I believe, because I probably in the late 90s saw her, on, or mid-90s saw her on Letterman. And then I also knew that she had dubbed George W. Bush Shrub, the little bush. But honestly, I did not know of her. And um, so how this came to be was uh, in 2012, which um, seven years ago, we always say we've been working on the six plus years. Now we're at the seven year mark. Here we are at the average length for most documentaries to get made. So we came in just under the bell. But um, in 2012, uh, my dear friend James Egan, who is a film producer in his own right, had done features, narrative, as well as documentaries, and was a professor. Um, reached out to me. We had wanted to make a film together for a long, long while. He said, um, he called me, he said, you need to go see Red Hot Patriot, the kick-ass wit of Molly Ivan, starring Kathleen Turner. This is the last week it's on. I was like, why? He said, don't ask, just go. <laughs> you got to go see it. I saw it last week. You have to go this week. <laughs> I said, okay. So I went, I bought a ticket, I watched. I laughed my ass off the entire um, play. It was fantastic. Kathleen was great. She embodied her although I didn't know much about her. It was just the, the, the level of uh, wit and smart just blew me away. So much so that when I got home that night, I Googled Molly till two or three in the morning. And I, at that time, there were you know some C-SPAN clips on there, and Women on the Verge, a bunch of different things. And I watched them, and it, was just, it got better and better and better seeing the real, the real thing, the real deal. Mm. And uh, in the morning, I called James, and I, I said, so what's the story? What's up? And he said, Nothing's ever been done. I said, you're kidding. I, I said, you mean just this play? He said, just this play. And I, he said, I was backstage last week. I saw Kathleen Turner, Allison Engel. You know, I went because the playwrights are friends of mine. 
So I, I said, that's amazing. And I, when I, in my looking that night, I, before I had seen, like, she'd been compared to Mark Twain and Will Rogers and Ida Tarbell. And it was just, it was just her, her wit was so incredible. And Twitter wasn't even that big yet. I mean, it's 2012. A few people were tweeting, but not like they are now. So I, I really didn't know, but I knew, wow, nothing's been done. So we had a meeting the following week with uh, Allison Engel, who was teaching at USC, as was James. And we immediately, we just connected. We have, the, so the funny thing is the Engel sisters, Margaret, Peggy, as she's known, and Allison, we all spell our last name the same way. And somebody said, are you guys related? And I said, oh, yeah, probably some shtetl way back. But, you know, they're, they're half Jewish, and I like to say I'm Jewish. So we just, it just was kind of a coincidence. And if you look up Engel in several languages means angels. So I started to joke around that Molly had her brigade of angels doing her bidding for her down here on terra firma. And, you know, she put us in touch with Betsy Moon, Molly's chief of stuff. Okay. And Betsy Moon, IMDb, James and I, and realized we were for real. We had credits. And uh, put us in touch with Molly's estate, the executor of her estate, who was Molly's former agent, Dan Green. And in the midst of while all this is going on, James and I were here in L.A. said, we really need a Texan. Because, you know, I'm from New York. He's from Baltimore. And both of us had a mutual friend. She's my best friend and his really close friend, and her name is Carlisle Vandervoort, and she is a true blue Texan from the bottom of her cowboy boots to the top of her cowboy hat. She is a Texan, and we'd all been friends for over 25 years. So Carlisle likes to say that, you know, we called her and James gang-pressed her and said, we have 48 hours to decide, and um, uh, Carlisle basically called us the next morning and said, I'm in. And she said, besides, she, she needed to help all us carpetbaggers out because, you know, that's what we were, <laughs> carpetbaggers. So what's so interesting about Carlisle is that not only, of course, is she a Texan, and she grew up reading Molly and was very aware of who she is. She grew up in the same uh, neighborhood as Molly Ivins in, in Houston, in River Oaks. She went to the same private school, St. John's. Wow. And she was also a child of oil and gas privilege, as was Molly. And, uh, and as Carlisle, Carlisle likes to say, she was high wasp. Um, but, but she had some debutante stuff and all of that, but she was not cut that way. She was, you know, she came out, she was an LGBTQ activist. Her grandmother had um, a, a, a cross burned on her front lawn when she supported, you know, desegregation in the Houston school system. So Carlisle had it in her background, so she jumped on board and I'll, I, I tell you, we got our green light in like within the first three weeks. And I think three weeks later, four weeks later, I was on a plane to Houston and Carlisle hopped and I hopped in her truck and we went down to Austin and we got our first six interviews, which I believe the anniversary is this week. Yeah. And here you are a little over, well, almost seven years later. Well, close, close to seven no, years. we are. This is the seven year yeah. mark. And what's amazing is yeah. that we all ponied up 10K. We all putting up like 3,350, whatever that is, divides into three, and it got ourselves started. And then Carlisle and I did our first fundraiser at Jim Hightower. He was one of our interviews at Jim Hightower's office, which we called the Church of Hightower. And we did a fundraiser, and we raised $17,000 August, oh this time period. Oh, my isn't that, goodness. Isn't that incredible? That Seven is years. incredible. Well, I, I could understand why, because uh, Molly Ivins is the kind of person that generates that sort of level of enthusiasm, that, that attachment to not only 
uh, emotionally and but also in terms of intellectually her passion what she believed in and how she wrote about it all come across in this film but it's certainly easy to see why people would be so drawn to a project about her uh, is that fair she was so happy yeah because because it's, everybody wanted to shine a light on Molly yeah. and it, nobody wanted her to be forgotten well, let's talk about Molly, and let's talk about sort of the arc of her career. You you alluded to it by virtue of other people who kind of grew up in sur- similar circumstances. But she came from money. She came from, and she went to a very good schools, and then she then from there, I think you could say she sort of broke a lot of molds along the way. Would that be fair? Yes, I think she started breaking them when she was in high school. Yeah, actually, maybe even younger. So tell us a little bit what why why that's true, and then. Her sort of chart her career into the into sort of the, the national media that, where we came to know her on a more of, of a, a national level. Well, Molly, you know, even as a kid, so people have said, was she always funny? And I did a deep dive into the archives at where her papers are kept at the Dolph Briscoe Center for American Studies at the University of Texas in Austin. I lived there for periods of, a t- of time, mm-hmm. and um, her her. She saved everything. I mean, A, she was a pack rat, perhaps. B, she had a sense of her own infamy, possibly. But there were, there were letters or notes that her father had left her on the kitchen counter when she was a teenager. There were her, all her camp letters were there. And she was funny. She was funny as a kid. You know, her camp letters home were funny. So she had a, a really great sense of humor, a great sense of melodrama. She read, I mean, Mole is in the hole. They called her Mole. There was a sense of humor naturally built in in the family. Um, I think her take, you know, she was a perfect straight-A student. And in fact, I don't think I've told this in any interviews, her girlfriends who, when she came to St. John's, Marsha Carter said, we knew, we knew there was a real smart girl in the class. And Marsha told the story that Molly, like at the age of like 11, had read War and Peace. Like, and she said, that's a really big book. And Marsha said, to this day, I haven't even read War and Peace because it's too long. But oh they God. called her. They had a nickname for her as she went through, you know, because in those years she came in when she was maybe 12, you know, junior high age. And as she, she was kind of, this is funny, for, it'll be funny for people. She was called Mature Mother Molly. She was taller than everybody else. She was like six foot tall by the time she was 13, 14. She, she was just, and she always was like, I'm not going to break the rules. She was really into her discipline and her reading and getting good grades. And she wanted to go to France. And so she had this vision for herself. And, and so she would criticize her girlfriends. And they just teased her horribly yeah. because of it. But she was known as the three M's, mature mother Molly, which I think is hilarious when you think about who Molly Ivins became. <laughs> Yeah. All that ribbing must have made her uh, yeah. kind of decide to uh, take a stand. But she, she actually ended up pointing her point of view and who she really was as she came of age. And she came of age and she says it in the film. You know, if you grow up in the South, you, you sooner or later realize that people are lying to you <laughs> because of segregation. Yeah. And that That's... adults are lying to you. And that therein lies the distrust for authority and what you're being told. And so also because she was awkward, she was six foot tall, she was big boned, she didn't fit into the idea of what girls were supposed to be, debutante, especially growing up in River Oaks, you know, the country club set. She didn't fit. And so, you know, she had to forge a path for herself. So she did. And she said, I I think I saw, you know, Humphrey Bogart in a trench coat on a movie, a late night movie on television. 
And that's where she got the idea. Like she said, the only thing I could do was write. Yeah. So she had this romanticized idea of being a foreign correspondent because it seemed very glamorous. And so that's what she set her sights on, and she could, that was like she always said, I fell, I fell backwards naturally into journalism. So she went to Smith. Her mother was a Smithy, and so was her grandmother. And she went to Smith, and then she, she went to Columbia J School and got her master's in journalism to get an edge because back then women were relegated to the snake pit. With food, fashion, fluff, gardening, and God knows, you know, lifestyle. <laughs> that certainly wasn't Molly Ivins. Yeah. Way, way smarter than probably most people. Yeah. And um, okay. she became a beat reporter for the Minneapolis Star Tribune upon her graduation from uh, Columbia J School. And she also interned during her summers between going to Smith and going to Columbia J School. She interned at the Houston Cron, where she met Terry O'Rourke and, and uh, Carlton Carl, who are in the film and are friends. Yeah. Her, you know, till the day she died. And even, and even today, they're in the film. And then she, when she was a beat reporter in Minneapolis, what happened was she just didn't like being put into, you know, objectivity and subjectivity. You have to write, you know, show all sides of the story. And Molly had her own opinions about that. And it frustrated her. So she wrote a, a, a series for the Minneapolis Star Tribune about the young radicals. And then the editor of the paper said, well, you have to balance it. So now write about the young conservatives. And then she did a whole thing about um, alienated students and then a yeah. bunch of series. So she fulfilled that, but she felt constrained. So she got an offer. She really loved the Texas Observer. She knew about it. She, Ronnie Duggar, she had, he had reached out to her. He had heard about her. There was a back and forth. So they basically offered her a job, and she came back to her home state and became the, she with Kay Northcott, the first women editors, co-editors of the only liberal paper, newspaper at the time, in the, in the South, much less probably the United States. It was there she became kind of the burr under the saddle, if you will, of all of the uh, Texas legislators and all of the uh, nefarious characters who run around in the Capitol. That was her thing. She went to, she said she went to the first opening session of the Texas Ledge, and it blew her mind. We're not going to give it away. People have to go see the film. Absolutely. And I was just going to say, I want to remind our listeners that we're talking about the film Raise Hell, The Life and Times of Molly Ivins, and we're talking with the director of that film, that would be Janice Engel. Because of her connection in Texas and because of uh, the political sort of uh, ground zero for for politics for for many different iterations going back in, in to presidential uh candidacies and presidents who have been from Texas to the connection to the Bush family. You mentioned uh, she she was the one who famously nicknamed George uh, George II, as I call him, uh, Shrub, and, uh, and other things. So she was really connected to Texas at a time when that was the epicenter of, of, of politics in this country. Again, it was her voice that sort of pierced through a lot of the noise that I was reading and hearing. And one of the things that I came away from watching the documentary is how fearless she was, but also how vulnerable she was as a person. I, I think uh, just in, in watching this film, you do talk about some of her, um, some of the challenges that she faced in her life uh, personally, as well as I just sensed that watching her on in, in doing interviews and things like that, beneath this sort of outward bluster in a lot of ways. She was also a person who was very much um, vulnerable. Is that, is that fair? Um, oh, 
well, of course she's a human being. I mean, I think that, you know, when you make a, a documentary about someone, you don't want it to be a hagiography. You know, you want to show that of the living, breathing, three-dimensional person she was, warts and all. And, um, and I think Molly would have been all for that. I think she, so her friends referred early on in my interview process between her friends and her colleagues and her family. You know, there was the public Molly, the professional Texan, as she was known, <laughs> and the private Molly. And the private Molly, yes, I do reveal that to you, but she was pretty shy, actually. She had this big, you know, larger-than-life, you know, smart as a whip, just could let it rip, you know, persona who could drink any guy under the table and, you know, you know, the last gal standing and still recite the entire, you know, Constitution. Uh, she, she was brilliant, but and she really cared about people. I mean, Molly, even if when she went after you, and it didn't matter which side of the coin you were on in politics, it's a, it was, she went after stupidity. And, of course, the Texas, the Texas ledge was filled with, you know, the various representatives who played in that sandbox. And she went after them and, and, and spoke truth to power and was fearless about it. But underneath that, you know, is somebody who uh, she'd never married. And I think she was married to her career, but she, that was a choice. She, she, I think, you know, she wanted to have children. She didn't. She supported lots of friends' children, sending lots of them to college, you know, doing all sorts of things. She was known as Aunt Moll, but she was very much a writer, a loner. That is a very solitary thing. And it's lonely. So, you know, the persona, there was a lot of pressure to keep that up. You know, what she had created was brilliant. And it's what she was known for. Right. Well, once she hit that national level, it seems like that was, yeah, that's what, that's what sort of defined her. Oh, my God. She was, people would call her, they'd want to quit. I mean, she yeah. was Twitter, Twitter ready in the 80s. I'm not anti-gun. I'm, I'm pro-nice. She said about a poli- <laughs> you know, politician, which put, put her on the map, about a local politician in Dallas. She said, you know, well, if his IQ slips any lower, we'll have to water him twice a day. <laughs> She got hate mail. She got fan mail, love mail. And, you know, they, David Letterman said, are you, you know, on, on the best and like mo- most hated lists? They do every year. And she said, they do polls every year, and I'm always on both. <laughs> she got hate mail. She was censored. But, you know, her thing was speaking truth. Yeah. She spoke truth because she cared that much to speak it. And particularly on the subject of, of the Bill of Rights, of our rights, certainly about privacy and about protection from uh, intrusion of government power into our lives, all these things that are increasingly more a part of the of where we should be discussing our, the, the, these are important issues today as much as they've ever been. Um, I want to let people know again that the film Raise Hell, Life and Times of Molly Ivins comes out here in Los Angeles today. The director... Janice Engel will be in town here at the Lemley Royal 13th, 14th for Q&As. So it's the 7.30 screenings. And it will be rolling out across the country, be looking for this film. This is one of those people that there's a lot of Molly in the film. And you'll get to, uh, you'll get a real sense of her as a person, but also as a writer and a journalist. And it's a terrific watch. And I encourage you all to go check this out. So I want to thank you so very, very much, Janice Engel, for spending some time here with us on Film School Radio. Thank, thank you, Mike. I want to end with uh, one thing. is How many documentaries make you laugh? <laughs> there you go. Thank you. Thank you, Janice, so much. Raise hell, y'all. <laughs> Thank you.
You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.